Okay, we're coming to Acts chapter 9. We're actually coming to the end of Acts chapter 9. It's going to be a little weird because we're going to read through our text um, for this lesson, but we're not actually going to get to the text of this lesson until next week uh, because I'll tell you why in just a second, okay? We're in Acts chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 32, and we're going to end at 43. We're going to introduce the lesson today, and then we're going to talk about... Uh, another example of amazing grace and something that just hit me this week that I'm super excited about. So if you got your Bibles, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 32, here's what the Word of God says. It says, Now as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda, and there he found a man named Ananias who had uh, been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So... Peter arose and went with them, and when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And she gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive." Became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. So if you remember last week, we gathered up a whole basket of fragments, so to speak, of this middle part of the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 9, after Saul's conversion. And we called that church dynamics. You remember that from last week? Uh, and for those of you who are not here, that's what we called it. And it was a list of seven things that was in this cluster of things we found in the middle of the book of Acts that we pointed out as these driving forces at work in any New Testament church. And the first one we looked at was the topic of amazing grace. Now, I didn't mention this, but thinking about that, it's very significant that Saul's name was Saul. You ever thought about that before he's called Paul? Because Saul in the Old Testament... Persecuted who? King Saul persecuted who? David, that's right, who was a forerunner of Christ. And here is Saul in the New Testament, albeit a different person, but the same name who persecuted David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, by persecuting the church. Well, in the Old Testament, you're almost left with an anticlimax there, right? Saul dies in an apparently unrepentant, unregenerate state. It's as if the work is taken up again in the Saul in the New Testament who would become Paul. And we called that amazing grace. This is the work God does. He takes someone like Saul, the least likely person to be converted, much less the least likely person to become an apostle, and he makes them a wonderful trophy of his grace. And the reason you can appreciate that is because you are a trophy of grace. You've got that same testimony. I, I kind of wished that last week I would have just talked about that and developed that point of amazing grace. And so my wheels were turning this week with what's coming up next, and then I realized 
In today's passage, we have one who is, in a sense, even more of a display of grace than Paul, and it's Peter. And this section in verses 32 through 43 is a section which we abruptly shift the narrative and stop talking about Paul for a while and talk about Peter. Paul is at Tarsus at this point. That's designed by Luke to, to in part, to, to sort of say there's a hiatus. But this is more than that. This is given because while Paul is going to be an apostle, and he's an apostle primarily to what group of people? The Gentiles. It's going to be Peter, who's going to be an instrument by whom the Spirit is going to be poured out upon that signal, initial Gentile family, the family of Cornelius. And so it's a central focus that we're going to come to in chapter 10, that story of Cornelius. And so this is kind of designed to show that though Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter is also called to the Gentiles because of the United Apostolic Mission. So that's part of the purpose here. And something else, I, I like to, to see this section. Uh, you have the end of chapter 9, all of chapter 10, and almost all of chapter 11 as a huge launch pad. I want you to view these next three chapters as kind of that thing. And on that launch pad are the things which will thrust the Apostle Paul, Barnabas, and Silas to go on their missionary journeys to all the earth. That launch pad, if it had a name, would be called Christ the Victor. The church goes out into the world with overwhelming, powerful evidence that Christ is king. And so the case, the next two weeks we're going to be looking at uh, is that Christ shows that he is the victor, not over disability, but he's a victor over death. That's what you see here. And then in chapter 10, you're actually going to see that Christ is the victor over alien nations, estrangement, and people being enemies over one another. And then in chapter 11, an amazing text, he's going to show that he's the victor and has authority even over political leaders. So that becomes a launch pad for all the other books and the themes of, of Acts. And so today, we're just going to cover the first part of verses 32 through 43, which I'm calling another model of amazing grace. Remember our theme here. Christ is alive and he is at work. That's right. And we see that in the book of Acts, especially here. Here's the outline of what we're going to be looking at in the next two weeks, okay? It's pretty simple. We're going to be looking at Peter as another example of amazing grace. First, and what we'll cover tonight, I'm going to back up a bit, and I want to remind you of where Peter came from. Not geographically, but remember, this is about amazing grace. We say, oh, it's so amazing that God converted Saul. It is amazing that God converted and continued uh, to use Saul, but it's equally amazing that he converted and continued to use Peter. And I think it's more amazing. You know why? Because for the most part, after Saul becomes Paul, we don't get to see Paul's failings a whole lot. Peter, from the beginning, fails a ton. <laughs> and yet, God still uses him. Still uses him. So we're going to look at those lapses and see how God used them. We're going to go a little back and see where, where Peter came from. Then the next week, we're going to follow, focus on these verses and ask the question, where is he now in our text? What's he doing in our text? Not just geographically, but what's the role he's fulfilling right now? And then thirdly, we're going to look, if you guessed it, in a brief glimpse of the future of where Peter's going. Where Peter came from, where he is now, 
and where he's going. And in all of this, folks, remember, there are rich lessons in here about these words that just roll off our lips anytime we hear the song, right? We hear the words amazing grace so much and in so many circumstances that I think we fail to really think about it. I don't want the words amazing grace to just roll off your lips. So let's look at another model of amazing grace. Let's begin. Where did Peter come from? I, wanna, I want you to look with me at some text in the Gospels. You can put a bookmark in Acts chapter 9. Actually, you can just flip out of there. We'll come back next week. But we're going to go to be Matthew and Luke and, and John for a moment. But I want us to start in Luke. Let's start at Luke chapter 5. And we're going to consider Peter's calling. An amazing grace of Peter's calling. Background, really this story in Luke chapter 5 is from verses 1 through 11. Peter and the other fishermen, they've been out. They're tired. Anybody fish in here? Um, I'm sure. Uh, you ever fish so much that at the end of the day you're kind of worn out from fishing? Uh, they've apparently been fishing for a long period of time. They hadn't caught anything. They want to rest. Jesus approaches them. Jesus needs a boat. Uh, he needs to get into a boat so he can speak out to the crowd of people that had gathered because at that time of the day, the wind would be blowing, that his speech would be going towards them, and so he wanted them to hear him. It was a massive crowd. You can kind of hear Peter saying in this story, Lord, I'm, I'm exhausted, uh, but, but that's okay. If you need a boat, you can use the boat, you can speak. And so he says in verse 5 of Luke chapter 5, says, Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. You can tell in his tone, he's, he's tired, right? And, and after he's done, Jesus essentially says, Peter, I'm going to pay you back for this. Go back out and cast your nets down. Peter says, ugh. More work, I mean, all night long, plus this, and now we've got to do it again. We didn't catch anything, but he says, Lord, Matt, which is interesting, right? He's, he's, he just met the guy. He's referring to him as Lord and Master, meaning he must, as many have been, been struck by the power of his teaching. Remember, he speaks as one who has authority, not like the scribes. So Peter says, I will do what you say. So, of course, they do it. And we know the story. What happens? Full of fish. They don't just get fish. They get fish after fish after fish after fish after fish. They are coming up in their nets. They are already, already bruised from labors and they're full to the brim. Not only do they fill up one boat, but they fill up other boats with the amount of fish they have. And this is a tremendous example of the power of God. Not only just to catch a fish, that's not the application here for all of our fishermen, uh, but the number of fish, so many fish that the boat begins to sink. And then Simon Peter says this, in Luke chapter 5 verse 8. Look at this. It says, but when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now listen, this doesn't simply mean that Peter was just kind of scared at the all of power that this guy had. He's not just intimidated by the power of God. We don't really know what Peter's background was. But I'll tell you this, for someone to say this, it means it probably wasn't a good background. 
Even in our day, right, in our community, we speak today of saying, I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace, right? Have you ever used that term? Um, as we should, that's a good term to use. But if you go up to a stranger or someone you don't know and you say, I am someone who is a sinner saved by grace, immediately in their minds, they're going to begin to thinking, okay, what? What's wrong with this person? Are you a drinker? Are you an adulterer? Are you a gambler? What do you mean a sinner saved by grace? That's not a common thing for people to hear and have to respond to. So when Peter says, go away from me, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, there's some background there. Not only as a fisherman who was untrained, but apparently he must have had some lifestyle that left an awful lot to be desired. Yet... What's important, and get this, is that he's called by the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to me. That is what Jesus does. What does the Bible say? Jesus doesn't come to call the righteous. He comes to call sinners to repentance. Yet, we are even shocked at all of this, and we continue to be. You wonder why Jesus would call a sinful man like this to be a disciple, let alone to be an apostle. Let me tell you this. I want you to listen to me here. My friends, the issue is not your background. And if I could only make this point stick with everyone here. You want to give me a litany of your background from the time of your youth what you did when you came to puberty and the world became open and you could start doing things uh, without mom and dad seeing you so that even now, if we would list those things, you'd be embarrassed and ashamed at what you did. Or maybe you struggle with the idea of your early life when you really messed things up, perhaps in your marriage, or with your children, in your neighborhood, your job, perhaps in your own physical body. But then the Lord calls you and you say, but Lord, I'm such a sinner. It's not about your background. Did Jesus call you? Even as he called Peter, not physically, but come. And as he says later to Peter in Luke 5, 11, you come follow me. That's what it means to be a Christian. Hear this. Your profession of faith is meaningless if you don't follow Christ. You walk in the steps. You do what he says, even as Peter has already said, at your word, I'll let down your net. So Peter is called. The issue is not Peter's background, but the amazing grace of God in Christ. Let's move on to look now at Peter's confession. Turn to Matthew chapter 16 if you have your copy of God's word. Matthew 16. 13 through 18, and also we'll look at 21, 23 too, just Matthew 16. This is something of the next step of Peter's discipleship. While it's given a different gospel, it's a signal point here. See, Jesus is in this region. He sits down with his disciples, verse 13. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So they aim to give him all kinds of theological answers. They need to impress the boss man here. So here they go. They said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus isn't interested in that. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Because when you profess your faith in Christ, there has been a whole new world opened to you by amazing grace. Therefore you are blessed. Verse 18, I will also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This is Peter's confession. He is a model Christian at this point with this confession. Bold before the world, never ashamed to speak boldly about the gospel. That is amazing grace. And I imagine that Peter's on top of the world right now because everybody else was answering theological questions. And when when Peter answered, Jesus responded with, that's exactly right. And so Peter's probably got a little bit of a big head here, and that shows because what's even more amazing is down in verse 21, not three verses later, look what happens. It says, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This is the Peter who was at the knees of Christ a couple verses ago, and now he's got the audacity to rebuke the Son of God? He said, you are Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. And now he's going to rebuke him? He, he tells Jesus, don't go to the cross, which is the worst thing you can say to Jesus who came here to die on the cross. He turned and said to Peter, on whose rock he had built the church, he turned aside and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Your stumbling block for me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Can I, isn't that the Christian life? Does that describe the Christian life to you? you? You confess Christ, and before you know it, you act just like the devil. Anybody with me? What you think, what you do, what you say, and, and when you do that, because you're in Christ, you immediately want to go hide in a hole somewhere and say, Lord, I don't know how you could have anything more to do with me. How could you ever even possibly use me in your kingdom? That's Peter. <laughs> Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Let's look now at Luke chapter 22, 31 through 34. Because not only do we see Peter's calling, we see Peter's confession, but so much of what we think about Peter is wrapped up in his trials, his testing, and his failures. And that's what we see in Luke chapter 22. Testing and failure. Boy, if this isn't part of the Christian life. <laughs> Luke twenty two thirty one. the Lord says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Who's that remind you of? Job. Simon, you, Peter, you are a modern Job here. The devil looked 
at how vacillating you are and your ups and downs, he has asked for you. Lord, give me permission to work on this guy and I will sift him like wheat. I will take Peter. I will shake him up good and see if there's any chaff there. But thank God for the next phrase. Look what it says. Jesus says, but Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter, you're going to fall. You're going to fail the test miserably, but you are going to return and strengthen your brothers because I've prayed for you. Then when you've returned, you're going to be better equipped to do the work of strengthening your brothers because of your failure. But then again, the impetuous Peter says in verse 33, but he said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. And this bold Peter, this guy who's so willing, who would cut ears off for Christ, not once, not twice, but three times just so he could get a little warmth by a fire says, I never knew this guy. The rooster crows and Peter sees Jesus and he weeps. Again, just the way that you do when you have blown it in your Christian lives. You, you say, my testimony before the Lord has been practically speaking worse than an unbeliever. And you say, Lord, you must be done with me. It feels like all I ever do is fail the test, Lord. Testing and failure. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you, Peter. Which is why, by the way, there's a text in Mark 16, 7 that is so touching. After Jesus rises from the dead, Jesus says, you tell the disciples I'm going to Galilee to meet me there. But look at how he says it. He says, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Not that Peter isn't a disciple, but Peter's the one who needed a special reassurance. He is still joined to the disciples to meet him because Jesus has prayed. What an amazing testimony to us as we walk through the Christian life. You fail the test? If you're in Christ, Jesus has prayed for you that your faith does not fail. And I, I think, I know, the Lord hears those prayers because he is the Lord. <laughs> then finally, we're going to see Peter's commission in John chapter 21. Okay. My eyes are getting blurry. John 21, really the text is 15 through 29, we're not going to read all of that. Uh, you remember this, this story, I can't wait till we get here by the way, and you probably can't either because it's at the end of John. Uh, but John 21, 15 through 29, Jesus is about to test Peter again. And so in verse 15 it says, so when they'd finished breakfast, which the biblical application is that breakfast is awesome and it's important, um, which is why I'm excited about Sunday morning. Uh, many reasons, but that's one of them. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I do. And he said to him, tend my lambs. You can imagine there's a certain wincing in Peter as he said that, right? 
Tend my lambs, that is my little sheep, my young sheep, lambs and sheep, part of the new covenant together. Verse 16, he says, he said to him, again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep, shepherd them, take care of them. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. You don't not merit being my apostle, Peter. Tend my sheep. Then he speaks of Peter's future in that text, but he ends with the same words in that text he virtually began with, follow me. Peter, you come and do what I tell you to do. And what have we seen in the book of Acts so far? Of course, Peter does on the day of Pentecost. He is privileged to preach that most important sermon. And then in Jerusalem, he and John are the leading apostles for the spreading flame of the early church. Now, now what you learn in all of this, what you learn from Peter's background, where he's from, it comes from this. Remember, it's not your background that it's important. It is not your best resolves. It's not your lapses. It's not your failures. If you are honest, you will have a package of those resolves, but best resolves and your best failures, not just every week. You could list them to me probably every day. But the point of all this, and the point we need to learn from Peter, is this question. Do you continue to follow Christ as your Savior and Lord? That is what's important. That is the thing that counts. That is why Jesus at the beginning and Jesus at the end says, follow me. See, the question is not, Peter, what did you do? Because if that were the question, Peter would have failed. The question is, Peter, what are you doing right now? People are grieved with themselves. They don't measure up. They sin. They fail. They sin against God. They sin against their brothers and sisters. It's a mess. And what they do is they say, that's such a mess. I'm going to run away from the church. That's the worst thing you can do. The church is for sinners who come and acknowledge their sins. And Jesus says again to them and again to them and again to them, follow me. Keep following me. I know you're going to fail. Keep following me. I know you blew it today, but are you keep following me? Follow me, follow me, follow me. It's why confession is so important for the Christian life. Before you can hear Jesus saying, follow me in the word of God, we ought to confess our sins to him. There's a promise the Lord gives in that confession. Forgiveness is in the promise of his grace. And so this is where Peter came from, called, confessed, tested, tried, he failed, but his commitment again, his continual following of Jesus is what brings us to where he is in Acts chapter 9. And that's really all I've got for the day, but isn't that such a picture of the Christian life? Called, it's not about your background, folks. It's not about what you've done before you come to Christ. It's not about what you've done at all. It's about what he's done. It's confession. So quick for us to confess one day, we'll be walking with Jesus in the heavens almost we feel, and the next day be at the bottom of the pit again. 
His testing and his failure, Jesus loves us enough to remind us that we have to be completely and utterly dependent upon him in all things, even in keeping and sustaining our faith, because he reminds us that we fail the test every time. But I'm thankful Jesus didn't. And then his continual commission to follow through with God's work, his continual commitment to follow Jesus every day. So that's the question. I always, people come into my office and oftentimes when I walk through salvation, I ask them the question, how do you know we're saved? We've talked about this before. How do you know that you're saved? And initially what they'll always say is, well, I know that I'm saved because back in 1990, whatever, I did this and this and this. Friends, that's no assurance at all. The question, the answer to the question, how do you know you're saved is this. Are you following Jesus? Are you, are you trusting in what Christ has done on the cross for your salvation now? Where is your trust and where has it been placed? Who are you following? That's the question. That's a good question to think of. Whether or not you have assurance is based upon that fact. Not that you follow perfectly, but endurance. Endurance, endurance, endurance in the Christian life. I wish it were prettier than that, but that's, that can oftentimes be ugly. It certainly was ugly at Peter's life, wasn't it? And yet, at the end of his life, he's still following Jesus. Praise God. What does he say? The one who endures to the end will be saved. Any questions, thoughts about Peter's life? Comments. I know I am. You guys glad you don't have to be perfect? Aren't you glad for the Peters in the Bible? Right? Everybody else. Paul sometimes I'm like, get up. You're being ridiculous, Paul. You make us all look bad. Peter, I'm like, I got that guy. <laughs> I know what it's like to be him. This is a good outline, by the way, thinking of Peter's life. Continue to remind yourself of that. Peter's calling, his confession, his testing and failure, and his commission. That's, the, that's a, a New Testament sermon on Peter. So, Any other thoughts, questions, comments? Anything we covered? <laughs> Not in Acts chapter 9 because we didn't cover anything in Acts chapter 9. Alright, let's pray together. Father, I so thank you uh, for Peter. Lord, I thank you for the example of the struggling Christian and yet I thank you for amazing grace. Lord, I know that when we talk about the idea of amazing grace, it's something that I am in desperate need of daily. I need your grace so much more than I need food or drink or even air. Lord, I am in desperate need of amazing grace and I love that you are so faithful to bestow it upon us day by day. Lord, how great a God you are. Lord, how that should be actually the thing that drives us to want to obey you more. That you would continue to show us grace in our failings, Lord. It shouldn't drive us to do what the Apostle Paul says in Acts cha or Romans chapter 6, where we say, okay, well, since grace abounds, can I sin some more? No, may it never be. May we, because of your outstanding, amazing grace, be driven all the more to holiness, be driven all the more to obedience. And Father, we thank you for the grace even to do that. Lord, I pray that we would be people who live in amazing grace and who are thankful for it. 
We live for Christ because of it. We ask for your help in that in Jesus' name. Amen.